This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. We are so excited about today. We've got the living legend, Mr. John Arnold, with us here in the studio. John, thanks for joining us, man. And thanks. It was uh, a couple of weeks ago when I saw the Twitter message yeah. saying it would be great to get John on the show. And I was really flattered to see the number of likes yeah. and interactions <laughs> with that tweet. And so I think people still remember me. That's great. So let's well, do it. Jake's been rubbing it in my face because I think I've tweeted you like three times like, hey, come on our show and talk about this. And then you responded to his tweet. So he's been hanging that over my head here yeah. for the last couple of weeks. But no, this definitely feels like the pinnacle of our show. You know, when we started the podcast two and a half years ago, we thought, hey, if nothing else, if no one listens to the show, at least we'll get some cool people in the room. And here we are with uh, with John Arnold. So it's pretty cool to have you here, man. Well, thank and you. Appreciate you doing this and taking the time. And so what I really wanted to talk about today was, you know, I was telling you before we started recording that I had people, you know, a lot of trading buddies hitting me up and saying, hey, you know, ask John what he thinks about this. And, you know, what's, what's his thoughts on the market? And, you know, we can talk about those things. But what I really want to talk about is, you know, you as a person and your path to where you're at today. Um, you know, I want to know, you know, the early days of, you know, building your career at Enron, you know, prior to that and what you're doing today in philanthropy. And I know this is a big box to unpack, but there's you really inspired a generation in the energy industry. And there's a lot of people that look up to you. And so I think a lot of people can find value out of just knowing your story. And so it's kind of what I want to dive in today and, you know, just want to know the story. And so let's talk about, you know, how, you know, I know that you're at Enron. I know the things that you did at Enron, but let's talk about before that. You know, how did you yeah. end up at Enron and how did you even get into, you know, the trading game? Yeah. So growing up, I was, I was always good at math. Right? And so I was the kid that was in fourth grade and I go to sixth grade math. And that kind of continued through my educational life. Right? And so I thought, you know, that I'm this really smart kid who's going to go to Harvard or MIT. Uh, but I was lazy. I was lazy as a student. So I was, uh, <laughs> thought I was smart, but I was getting A minuses. And the teachers didn't like me because I was a, kind of a smart aleck kid. And so I think when I went to apply to college, uh, I got a lot of no's. I mean, my teacher recs, I'm sure, were terrible now in retrospect. And I, and I didn't have a really good story to tell. Uh, and so I ended up not going to the Ivy Leagues that I really wanted to. I went to Vanderbilt, which now is a very competitive school back then. Um, it was, wasn't that hard to get into. And so that kind of put a chip on my shoulder. Right? And even going there, I, I didn't have that much interest in, in getting the education. I wanted to get out. Right? So I did Vanderbilt in three years. And I, I want to get out and go into the business world. And I don't even know what, what business. Right? But I had read, um, I'd been reading the Wall Street Journal since I was in high school every day. Uh, I read Liar's Poker. So I kind of knew somewhat about Wall Street. And I knew that that was a kind of quick way to go make some money. And so I thought, like, that's, that seems like a good path. So coming out of Vanderbilt, like, okay, I'm going to go try to work at a New York bank. So go through that process. And again, Vanderbilt at that time, kind of a tier two, tier three school in terms of the selective schools. And so there wasn't this big pipeline from Vanderbilt to Wall Street. Got a couple interviews, but they said no. So now I got a really big chip on my shoulder because I'm still, <laughs> like, still have some confidence in me. 
but like I've been rejected now twice. And so best job I got was company Enron. Now I was born and raised in Dallas. My okay. father was in the energy business kind of tangentially, but even um, in college, I didn't know what Enron was. I'd never heard of the company. They started to research it and they called themselves the, the investment bank of the energy industry. Right? And they had this big trading floor and um, one of the trading magazines, magazines ranked them as the number one energy trader and marketer. Um, so like close enough, yeah. right? I'll go do that for a couple of years, go back to business school, figure things out and, and see where I want to be. So that was really the start. It was like, came down here. Um, I did my interviews, um, the Super Saturday interviews, we go talk to five different people for 45 minutes each and ended up talking to some guys on the trading floor. And at the time it was very hard as an undergraduate to start on the trading floor, right? They wanted to put you in these other groups because you make a mistake on the trading floor, it, it can be a big problem, Yeah. right? You say the wrong words and it's a big <laughs> problem. So like, yeah, they wanted to save those seats for the, for the MBAs and but I had had some like, good talks with guys on the trading floor. And I remember it was um, probably late April, maybe early May. And they, um, they had a call from Enron. I already had the job. I had accepted it. And they call me and say, hey, if you can get here like, tomorrow, we have a spot on the trading floor open for you. And I said, look, I, I graduate in two weeks. How about two weeks in a day? Right? <laughs> And so I literally, I think I walked graduation on a Friday and on Monday I was starting on the trading floor at Enron and I started on the oil trading desk and it was, so this was the redheaded stepchild of Enron. <laughs> yeah. And you kind of did this because the clients also produced some oil and so they needed some hedging <laughs> over here, but it was kind of a, it was kind of great small group um, and had these great mentors from the very first day and I sat down and just start learning the business. And I, in retrospect, I realized that although I went to you know, liberal arts university, uh, I, I did a double major in math and economics. And my math was a specialization in statistics and, mm. and in econ, it was in econometrics. And in retrospect, like, that's the perfect education for trading. Mm -hmm. right? So econometrics is how do you explain the past? Mm -hmm. right? And statistics is how do you predict the future? Yep. Right? And that's what trading is. Right? We, we have all this data from the past. Like, why did things happen the way that they did? How do you manipulate the data to try to build a model? And then how do you think in terms of probability and statistics about how to, how to take bets on the future? And so I had this wonderful experience of the perfect profession for me, my skill set, I found the first day of my career, right? Being on commodity trading floor. And that was just, um, I look back, I, it takes a, some people, you know, years, 10 years, more. Some people never find kind of a, their perfect uh, yeah. profession early on. Right? And I was there on day one. So I, I'm on the oil trading floor for about a year, about six months into it. There's a big blow up um, on the floor. You get a new head of the, the desk comes in and I, he actually sits right next to me for about six months, pulls me aside one day, says, um, I'm about to blow this desk up, right? I really like you. It's not going to be good for your career to be on this desk. Right? You got to find someplace else. Right? You can either go 
to the oil trading desk in London, or you can go downstairs and trade natural gas. And so here I am, uh, um, I'm 21 still at this point, and I'm being offered an expat package in London. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, this is really cool. But it's an oil and this is a natural gas company. So like, how much do we prioritize like the personal yeah. thrill of being in London with an expat package versus if I want to succeed in this company, I need to be a natural gas. Yeah. So I ended up going down to natural gas. And was that a hard decision for you or? Yeah. So after a week. Because <laughs> I mean, I imagine myself being 21, you know, offered yeah. an expat package in London. I mean, you talk about the experience, the life experience of going over, that'd be cool. But you also know for career progression that you should be on the net gas yeah. as well. So, so uh, I remember my boss coming to me, he offered them, he was, think about it. And then like a week later, he's like, all right, come on, you got to tell me. <laughs> like, which one is it? And I'm like, uh, that's gas. Great. And that's kind of how it happened. Just kind of almost flipping a coin. Yeah. You know, Cause I'm still thinking I'm going to be in this company for two of the years, maybe three years, go back to business school. Yeah. And, but I, I probably should learn this that gas business while I'm here. So go down there. And it ended up being the reason the spot opened up on the gas trading floor was, um, so this is early 1996. I graduated in 95. Um, the winter of 95, 96 in natural gas, there was this cold snap. Um, and you had the first time since gas really became this traded commodity that you had this basis blowout. Yeah. So everything west of Louisiana was one price. Everything Louisiana East was, a, was at a very significant premium. So there was a trader or trading desk down there that traded Texas basis that had lost a lot of money that winter. And so there was an opening. And so they put me as kind of smart young kid that didn't know anything about the natural gas business to go assist an older gentleman who knew a lot about the natural gas business, had been there in gas for decades, but knew nothing about trading. And mm. they're like, you guys go figure it out. Right? <laughs> the and so team. I'm teaching him trading and he's teaching me about gas and it worked great. It's a one-two combo. Yeah. You guys. Yeah. yeah. And, they, and it was also great because nobody knew anything now. Right, so gas as a traded commodity in that kind of that modern era was all new. Yeah. Right. Now you had for the first time these relationships, these historical relationships had blown out. And so now historical knowledge of this is almost meaningless because nobody knows what the future holds. Like how do you you have this one time shock? Is that is that one time or is that how this thing's gonna trade forever? Like nobody knows. So coming down there not knowing anything like I'm kind of equal footing with the rest of the industry that's been mm -hmm. there forever. So, um, kind of things happen, right? The industry at the time, you know, you have Enron is growing exponentially. Mm -hmm. And then all the Enron copycat companies who are trying to mimic what Enron's doing. Um, and the way, easiest way to do that is go hire some Enron traders yeah. to help start <laughs> your, your trading floor. Yeah. Right? And so, Meanwhile, Enron's um, starting to trade other commodities, notably electricity, mm -hmm. um, and then gets into other things um, later on. And so how do you start trading electricity at Enron? Well, you and go get a couple guys who know a lot about electricity and go get some guys from the natural gas floor and put them together and let them go figure out that. Um, but what would actually ha happen because of that was um, it was very easy for a young guy that showed responsibility and that showed promise to escalate quickly. Mm. Right? And so, you know, my 
with, you know, again, I'm on the trading, um, I have junior responsibility for a trading book within 12 months of graduating college. Within 24 months, I'm the head trader on the Texas basis book. And then kind of within 36 months, I'm now the assistant on the NYMEX book. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, you know, my career is doing this, Enron's doing this, people are trying to hire me, people are trying to hire everybody from Enron, yeah. right? Getting offers for, you know, you know, 2x of what I'm making there. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm, you know, I'm taking the, the GMAT course at night. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, maybe one more year here, right? And one more year turns into one more year. And all of a sudden it, I've got MBA graduates working for me. Yeah. Um, and so that started this, like, this crazy path through Enron. Yeah, that's, you know, it's wild because, you know, you take someone like that's my age, you know, 31 years old, was a kid um, while, you know, Enron was around. And it's hard to wrap my head around, you know, how fast and how large Enron was. And you look at the energy industry today, specifically in Houston, I mean, Enron's tentacles still, you know, mm -hmm. go all mm -hmm. throughout the city. And so I can only imagine, you know, your career progression during that time. You have Enron on this exponential path and then your career as an individual is on that same, uh, that same exponential growth pattern. And I imagine that, you know, you had to be, it just had to be a lot at one time. <laughs> and I'm sure life is pretty crazy for you. It was fun. It was crazy and it was fun. And it's everything that, you know, you want your life to be yeah. like in the twenties where it's just <laughs> high stress, high work, a lot of, you know, you gotta work all day and then go out with the industry. Cause yeah. there was a bunch of twenties, early thirties, single guys yep. dominated the trading industry. Yeah. Okay? Um, and then the brokers would come down and take out all the traders and we just, your life was kind of 24 seven yeah. around this same group of people both within the company as well as your peer group at other companies. So it's pretty much like that Wall Street life, but just here in Houston. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where was the exactly. where was like the, the trader hangout spot? In the Houston? Velvet Elvis. The Velvet Elvis. I don't even <laughs> heard it. So the, is it still so, around? So the Velvet Elvis is on Richmond, um, around Buffalo Speedway. Okay. Um, it was the Velvet Elvis until the estate of Elvis Presley sued them oh, for trademark yeah. infringement. They <laughs> sent him a cease and desist letter and they, they changed their name to Velvet Melvin. But that's just Melvin's like, not near as cool yeah. as Elvis. Yeah, the, the estate of Melvin didn't, uh, didn't get a hold of that. And so they were able to keep their name the Velvet Melvin. Uh, but they, this was during the cigar smoking craze. Yeah. So and Velvet Elvis was the cigar bar. He used to come home every night and just like stinking, yeah, up. just yeah, cigars. I didn't even smoke them, but all my yeah. everybody around me yeah. was smoking yeah. them. And you just like in the morning, you pick up your clothes. And you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so we got a little bit of uh, local Houston uh, history here. I didn't, I didn't know about the Velvet Elvis. So you go check that place out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what it is today. Yeah, I'll have to go hunt it down and see what it is today. Yeah. So you know, everyone knows the story of Enron. With the downfall, sure, it was very, uh, you know, a lot of turmoil there for you individually. Tell us about, you know, the the transition yeah. after after Enron. And I mean, if you want to dive into, you know, uh, what it was like when everything uh, was crashing down, you can. But I want to know about the transition of when yeah. you go in and start your own shop. So I became the head trader at Enron, I think, in 99. 
Um, and here I am, I think I'm 25 years old. That's right? crazy. And have the biggest trading job in the, in, in the industry. Yeah. Right. And again, like I think about had I gotten the M&A banking job at Merrill Lynch, right. Which yeah. is what I wanted. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I would be grinding out the, the models and, and the yeah. presentations. But and I mean, this is so significant too. Sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but I mean, Enron created the markets. I mean, they, the way that natural gas was traded, electricity was traded. I mean, Enron created that. And so here you are, mm-hmm. you know, mid twenties and you're leading that effort. Yeah. I mean, just talk about the amount of responsibility and just, you know, for the way that markets operate today and you are a primary driver for yeah. that happening. It's just wild to, it's wild to think about. It's just cool to see that you were kind of like, because you were rejected at the schools and then maybe even at the banks and stuff, it's like, you were kind of like this forced outsider yeah. and that chip on that shoulder. And it's like, now you're, you're 25 years old, kind of top of the world. Like, there's, there's a great uh, quote, by the way, from a VC. And the quote is chips on shoulders, put chips in pockets. And so <laughs> yeah. when you talk about that chip on shoulder, I think you're the epitome Yeah, of I think that. I had that, right? Um, so... Enron was doing things, um, was really leading the industry, had an amazing group of people. I kind of look back on it. I think it, um, people that were there were kind of similar to people that were at Drexel Burnham, right? When the, when Drexel went bankrupt, um, it was a stain on one's resume for a, a while, mm-hmm. right? And now people look back and go, oh, you worked at Drexel. Wow. I, you know, the, the people that worked at Drexel are now throughout the financial industry. And it's the same with Enron, just the, yeah. the people that worked there. You know, it was, it was a scarlet letter for mm-hmm. several years. Um, and now you look back and like the, where those people ended up and the number mm-hmm. of different things that they started is amazing. Yeah. So one of the real innovations that Enron did um, is the, the exchanges and the electronic exchanges started going during mm-hmm. this time. Right? And Enron created Enron Online. Yeah. Do you remember? Did you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you familiar with this? this? Yeah. Enron Online. So Enron Online tell was us about it though, because was, there's a lot of people that aren't. So. so there was, there was ICE. ICE had started. Yeah. Um, and ICE was a group of banks and some energy companies that had taken, in, they got an ownership stake in exchange for promising volume to the, to the platform. Yeah. But it's very hard to get momentum on these platforms. Yeah. Right. And so. If there's, if no one's posting numbers, nobody wants to post numbers. And so that's why the founders of it said, hey, we'll give these 10 big market participants, there's about 10, um, equity in it in exchange for guaranteeing volume on the thing and try to use that as a mechanism to get momentum onto the platform. Um, it for many years was, had largely failed. And you see firms, right, that the last day of the month go do some big block trade, which wasn't the intent of, <laughs> of these volumetric commitments, but um, they had a real hard time getting liquidity. And so Enron decided it's going to do a one-to-many. So rather than the many-to-many platform, it was a one-to-many where Enron was the counterparty on every trade. Enron mm-hmm. posted live two ways in dozens of products. Um, and so they, from the fixed price side, we would have front month, um, one or two seasons, and usually a calendar strip. Mm-hmm. Right? And so all the customers would see this. There wouldn't be marketing fees added on to it. A customer who wanted to hedge, who had uh, agreements with Enron, could just log on to the thing and get a really good pricing on it. And I or my assistant would keep the markets that I was responsible for, but there was we did a lot of our physical gas trading on this, mm-hmm. um, all the basis trading on it. So we had 
dozens of live markets during the day. And so um, during this time, there's big volumes coming through and on online because people just found it easy. They didn't have to pick up a phone and call the the floor of the exchange. They didn't have to call an over-the-counter broker. Yeah, the, Those book markets were still both active, but it was just easier just to take your mouse and click it. Yeah. And, you, and you did your transaction. It's so funny too, you know, for like our generation that came up with the internet, just thinking about life before the internet. Yeah. I just had to pick up a phone and call a broker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think back about, I mean, so prior to that, there were two ways to trade, right? You were calling the floor of the exchange, right? Some broker was sitting in New York at the NYMEX, now, of course, the CME. Um, and you talk to this phone clerk and you'd ask him where the market was. He would shout into the pit, right? Asking <laughs> his trader where the market was. Trader would kind of sense it out, ask one of the market makers down there for a market if it wasn't obvious. They like, get relayed back. Market maker would tell the trader, the trader would tell the phone clerk, the phone clerk would tell me. I might tell a customer or it yeah. might, might be from me, right? Just the inefficiencies of it. And so yeah. like, this is all, how do we like, disrupt <laughs> yeah. this terribly inefficient platform? But, but, but volumes on the floor during this time were still very high. Over-the-counter market was still very active. And so it was, I would have one phone, one ear was with the floor from the, from the opening bell to the closing bell. I'd have, an, my other ear was for the over-the-counter brokers. And then um, had the mouse controlling the markets and then people shouting too, because I would execute all the floors business, whether we had a, a customer or whether there was another floor that was taking fixed price risks and needed to hedge it out. Yeah. And it just like at the end of the day, it looked back and just the amount of volumes that were coming through there were astronomical, but it was amazing learning experience. Yeah. Because I mean, you guys, the volume that you're doing compared to ice back then, I mean, I can't remember what the ratio was of, you know, trades how many y'all were making yeah. for every one on ice but i mean ice wasn't even a contender it wasn't back in those days yeah it was nothing um, yeah the, the partners on ice people that own the equity stakes were trading on anyone online yeah it was, yeah it was, <laughs> that's um, when you know you have a good product yeah <laughs> when the competitors yeah, yeah. are using it right and it was like there was real value in a number of ways or one it was this great liquidity engine and everyone was the largest trader so mm -hmm. by just fading if you want to sell you just fade your bid offer a little bit to the sell side and you can sell a lot of contracts. Yeah. Right. And you also got to see who the other side was. Right. And so we, we had that information. Nobody else did. Yeah. Right. So we could see what everybody else in the industry was doing. Yeah. Which was tremendously valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Right. If you have that data, you know where the market's going, right? So you can use that data. Yeah. You just know what everybody else is doing. Um, so, um, you know, just get to the end of the day and just look back at the volumes traded and it was, it was massive, but um, it was a great place to work. Right? Just a lot of innovation. I mean, mm -hmm. Some of it worked, some of it didn't, obviously. Yeah. Um, so Enron, you know, filed bankruptcy December, 2001. Right? So shortly after 9-11, the mm -hmm. financial markets freeze up. It was kind of, um, and, um, you know, I, I'm trying to decide what to do. So, I could have stayed at Enron forever. And mm -hmm. I just really enjoyed it. It was a great place. Um, but now I'm kind of being forced out. Right? And I got to make a decision. And so the now is, so the Enron trading floor is deemed to have value, just keeping the systems and the people together. And so the estate of Enron um, cut a deal with UBS. And so UBS took 
a pared down version of the Enron trading floor. And so um, took uh, maybe half the people, half the headcount and all the systems. And so you, Enron, Enron provided the, um, the human capital and the technology and UBS provided a balance sheet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if all the things that worked at Enron, you know, of all the different divisions, the gas trading thing always worked. It, yeah. That mm-hmm. was the moneymaker of the business. And so it came down to the decision, like, do I want to go with UBS? Right? And I decided, right, this is my time. Right? I've gotten paid well. Um, I'm single. I don't have kids. I have no responsibilities. I've got some money in the bank. I want to go take a swing at it. Right? I want to go run something. Mm-hmm. Um, and the deal with UBS, it was, it was a bit amorphous. There wasn't a, 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 a structured um, financial deal. It, w- it wasn't formulaic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and wasn't sure kind of what the trading capacity would be, what were the limits going to be. And it was still pretty large. And so I was like, I want to do something small. I want to go run something small. Um, didn't know under what capacity, right? So I thought about, hey, do I want to go run an energy desk at a bank? Do I want to go to a hedge fund? Um, or do I want to go out on my own? And I just kind of explored those three options. And, and again, now I'm still kind of 27, but I'm like, you know, um, you know, I'm think I'm king of the world. And yeah. so I have all this. I'm sure confidence. you had a lot of good offers at the time too, right? Yeah. So I had, um, I, you know, I, I could have gone and run an energy group at a, at a, um, at an energy firm, mm-hmm. the trading group at an energy firm. I could have gone and run the desk at one of the big New York banks. Um, I got offers to go to a couple of hedge funds, but it became clear. I started getting calls um, from people in town, some people out of town saying, you know, if you go do your own thing, like, I'm interested in investing with you. And so as I thought about it, <laughs> Uh, I remember going to visit a, a gentleman, one of the one of the first guys um, who did commodity trading in a hedge fund format, in a small hedge fund format. Um, and he, I, I go into his office, and I had known him you know, tangentially up to that. And I go and just kind of talk to him about his, his experience with it. And I show up about noon, and he's got a glass of wine on his desk. He says, "I." My, my wife doesn't like me to drink, but my doctor says I need to have a glass of red wine. It helps me for my heart. Right? And I'm like, like <laughs> this is pretty cool. Like, I just came from this big corporate, corporate atmosphere. Like, you know, the fact that, you know, you do something on your own and you can have a glass of wine at your desk if you want. <laughs> like, that's kind of good. And so he kind of set me up with, you know, his bank and, and I had gotten high confidence that I could raise the money, you know, the, the day one money. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, it was really between, do I go work for a hedge fund or do I go start my own? And that's where the best economics mm-hmm. lay, um, formulaic payout. And, and I realized that the only thing that working for another hedge fund provided was day one capital. Yeah. Right. That there wasn't really any synergy between what I was doing and what they were doing. Yeah. And, um, and so if I could raise my own day one capital, then why share half of it with my employer? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of first quarter of, uh, of 2002, right? And so I 
told UBS, I'm not going with you. I'm start setting up on my own. And then the, the stories on Enron start getting really bad about the second quarter. So first quarter, I'm out setting up my business. I go yeah. rent office space. I start hiring some people, start buying computers and raising money. I'm doing the, and I'm like, um, I just traded off a balance sheet before. I never had a fixed capital stack. And so I want to start with $50 million of capital and just kind of start small and work my way up. I'm going to have to cut people back because there's so much interest. I think I, you know, I think there's a hundred million dollars of demand for this product. And then second quarter comes right? and I've signed the commitments for the lease and I've signed commitments to hire people and bought furniture and, and the rhetoric on Enron just was horrible. Like every week there was a new scandal coming out. I think the Houston Chronicle ran, what was it like 1400 negative articles about Enron that year alone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the New York times and the Washington yeah, Journal. Yeah, like, yeah. There was a lot of, a lot of stories to, um, to report on. And so everybody, all the investors or almost all the investors said, Hey, you know, like, I'm not sure everything's kosher over there. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure, you know, there's started to be some of the scandals in the, the power trading side of Enron mm -hmm. were hitting the papers. And so they all said like, you know what? Oh, I, I'm not going to be day one, but you know, I'm going to stay in touch. Right. So I took, Two million of my own money. I had um, my clearing firm had this program where they, if you cleared there, they had this emerging manager where they put five million. So they stayed, and I had one other investor, a random guy out of Chicago who put in a million, and I got eight million dollars. I'm like, that's what I got. Like I got to start. So, uh, so July two thousand two, expecting fifty yeah. to hundred million. Yeah, I'm like eight, eight million. Yeah. I'm like, all right, let's go. I love it. Um, and so right after Enron fell, all the Enron lookalikes fell, right? The Dynagies and El Pasos and Williams, mm -hmm. right? it all had similar models. Wall Street just said, I don't know what's real in this industry. Like we need to regroup. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so uh, all the big trading firms either um, also went under or got their risk limits severely pulled back. And so there was just chaos in the market. And... Uh, I had come from, I was the biggest market maker in the, in the market. Right. And so here I am like from first day, it was like, there's just free money, just arbitrage and market making, and you don't even have to put on any risk and can make good returns. So first three months I, I'm doing it, I, you know, all three months were 30 something percent returns on capital. Um, and I remember, and I'm still trying to raise money. And I remember going to, literally, I went to this dentist in Houston and I'm trying to get a hundred thousand dollars from this dentist, right? <laughs> and I'm like beating my head against the wall. I'm like, what am I doing? I, I, I make a hundred thousand dollars a day in the markets right now. Just stop. Like, just stop trying to raise money and just focus on making money. And mm -hmm. if you make money, then everybody's going to show up again. And sure enough, kind of within kind of six months, they, I was sending out the monthly letter to all the investors that I had thought were coming in on day one. And so a lot of them start calling up and going, eh, maybe I'll send you some money. Right. And so, <laughs> so it starts to go well. Right. And the market's still chaos. And you know, the, the market, um, you know, the forward market in most commodities and especially in energy is sellers over. Mm -hmm. You just have more, more concentrated 
fixed price risk is in the hands of producers than is in the hands of end users. Right? So the market's always sellers over mm-hmm. for term. And there was just no risk capital to take the other side of that. And so the market's trading at what I view as um, very depressed levels relative to fundamental value that kind of fall into the winter of 2001. And it starts being a bit cold winter, right? And balances are getting tight, but the market still like, doesn't have that much risk capital. Like, there's just not many traders in it. And so market stays too low for too long. And it gets to a point where, you know, I'm just long. Um, the risk reward on this trade is really good. Start buying some way out of the money calls um, for March and get lucky, right? Get this cold snap forecast late February. And the market goes from $6 to $11 in two days. Wow. <laughs> right. And at the time, I have maybe $50 million, um, under management. And in those two days, it made $70 million. <laughs> right. And so like over a hundred percent in two days and like, yeah. like, wow. Right. Like I need like, to do this more like, often. <laughs> like, okay. Now, now this is big time. Yeah. Right? And so, so now we're 2003. So, so sorry, that was um, the, the winter of 2002, 2003. All right. It's not 2003. And a bunch of the guys that worked for me or worked with me at Enron um, who had gone to UBS, we were all starting to get frustrated. Now all of a sudden I have some real capital. Mm-hmm. I'm like, come on over. Like, come work for me. How big's the team around this time? So early 2003, it's probably it's like six or eight people. Mm-hmm. But we probably double in 2003 just because there's more assets. So I can start bringing in real traders. Yeah. You know, other traders and, and diversifying some of the bets we're making. Yeah. Because it was pretty much just me in the beginning. Yeah. Um, and then from there, it's just this remarkable run. It was, um, hey, it was kind of the industry provided incredible opportunity. Um, really, through two thousand and nine, it was just this unique time in the space. Probably, you know, in, in certainly in the history of natural gas, but in the history of kind of traded financial um, products, it was just it's an incredible run with lots of crazy stories we can get into if you want. But where do you want to go? The, I want to hear all the crazy stories from <laughs> well, you know. I imagine, you know, going through, you know, financial crisis and impact that that had on markets. I mean, I'm just sure that there's a ton of crazy stories from the market at that time. Um, you know, that's also at the beginning of, you know, the shell revolution, you know, starting mm-hmm. to get there in the 2010 timeframe. So, you know, I would love to hear a little bit, you know, why the opportunity was good during those yeah. times. So, so natural gas is this, if you had to create or write down characteristics of what makes a commodity good to trade? Right? It would kind of define natural gas. Right? So it's, it was one that especially in the 2000s, in the 90s and 2000s, people still didn't know about. Right? It was, yeah. um, you know, kind of late 2000s, it started to become much more prevalent. But before that, like, people weren't graduating from college saying, I want to be a commodity trader. I want to be a natural gas trader. Yeah. Right. It was like, I want to trade currencies. I want to trade bonds. I want to trade yeah. stocks. Uh, and so, and the, the banks kind of got in and out of the market. Sometimes they were bigger. Sometimes they were, you know, had some risk capital. Sometimes they didn't, but it wasn't getting the best people in the banks. Uh, but it was some market that was um, 
you know, it, 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 you have, it's the marginal demand, right? So from the power sector, you know, you look at just the stack, the power stack mm-hmm. right? and natural gas is at the top, right? So there's a lot of flex, a lot of volatility in demand, Yeah. right? Supply is very inelastic in the short and medium term, right? It was the market during that kind of 90s into 2000s was getting tighter every year right? as demand was going up, mostly through power generation, and the next molecule was getting harder to find and extract from the ground. So you were getting to new pricing levels, um, and you had this boom and bust cycle associated with that. Um, you had a market that had to balance at least once and kind of twice a year, right, with, with defined storage. And so the market almost demanded that going into the winter that you had at least, you had a minimum level of minimum amount of storage, and then you had a maximum amount defined by how much storage capacity is there, right? And so it had to, at least once a year, had to get back to that fundamental value. It could deviate um, before that, but by October 31st, the market had to be in this, this range of storage. And then by March 31st, you had to at least have this minimum amount of storage. Mm-hmm. So twice a year you had, you were constrained and the price had to move. It had to move in order to get you to low storage levels. Yeah. Um, it was very highly traded, right? So from, for a quarter of 636 that bifurcated producers and end users, right? That the molecules had to trade, had to change title, right? It had to get traded. And so um, that created that role for the marketer. Um, and there was a lot of people who had significant um, exposure to natural gas, both from the uh, producer side and the end user side. So a lot of forward hedging. Yeah. And it, it was a closed system, right? You could model it. You didn't have to worry about who was heir to the throne in Saudi Arabia or what's OPEC going to do over the weekend? Um, you know, economic trends didn't affect it in the short and medium term. Uh, and so you had this kind of inelastic supply and demand. You had to have these big price moves to balance the market. And, and then it set up the boom bust cycle, right? And then you had a lot of passive money that would come in over the years. Uh, and it was just great. It's kind of all these things. So it, kind, that you it, want. it kind of sounds like, I mean, listening to you, it's almost as predictable as it comes to commodities. Like when you have, you know, these two points of the year where these events happen, it sets up, you know, it's going to go one way or the other, right? And so you can you can play on that. Where maybe yeah. in other commodities, you're not able to do that. So, yes. Yeah, so on some commodities, um, like copper, for instance, right? You can have if people are bullish copper over the longer term, you can store copper anywhere, mm-hmm. right? And on a very, mm-hmm. there's no constraint on maximum amount. Um, yeah. And so, you know, you need some minimum um, storage, but that doesn't come into play very often. And so um, you don't, you don't have that or gold, right? There's no, no constraint on storage of gold. Yeah. Right. For those of you that haven't heard of Petrovisor platform from Datagration yet, well, you're in luck because it just so happened to be the sponsor of the Oil and Gas Service Podcast. So Petrovisor is a knowledge automation platform for EMP companies' production and operations data. 
If you're watching this on video, I know you can see the screen share. They're walking us through a demo here. Super, super slick. So what does it do? It removes existing data silos to automate the flow of data and knowledge across the EMP value chain. So what is that? So doing this creates knowledge automation for everyday work while enabling scalability, speed of deployment, and data transparency throughout the organization. Customers use Petrovisor to make the best use of their data, preparing themselves and their organizations for a generational evolution of technology. Where the platform operators have seen an increase in operating netbacks, having lower lifting costs by 10 20% through advanced problem detection and lift optimization. In addition, operators can reduce data management costs by 80 to 90%. That is no joke, while increasing data utilization with Petrovisor. These guys make it super simple. Petrovisor can be implemented in a matter of weeks, not months, saving hundreds of thousands of dollars for the operator, if not millions. Head over to datagration.com to learn more. What was the single biggest trade you ever made? Let's talk the Amaranth trade for a minute. Okay. So, so that was not the single biggest trade, although I think that's a- That was definitely something in the, me, the Twitter thread that everybody was asking. People know about. me from Amaranth. Okay. And um, that just received so much attention and it was- presented in the press as Centaurus versus Amaranth. And it wasn't that. And I'll get into that. But I think I, people, I think, get, get interested in the story. So they like the stories, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> so, and I'll start with a little bit of background because I think it's important. In the 90s, a lot of hedge funds were doing arbitra arbitrage type strategies. Convertible bond arb, um, on the run, off the run bond yields, um, merger arb, right? And that stuff started to get arbed out. And so the returns on that were going down. And so you had these big hedge funds like the Citadels and the HBKs who said, like, we need to start ramping up risk. We just have to because otherwise we're not going to earn above market returns. And uh, a number of hedge funds ended up getting into the business, right? Including Amaranth. And Amaranth hired Brian Hunter and Brian... Um, made a ton of money in 2005. So this was the year Katrina hit and then Rita hit. Mm -hmm. And so um, market was already tight. Um, Katrina hits just, you know, runs right through a lot of the processing facilities yeah. in Louisiana. Um, prices spike, Brian makes a fortune. Right, he comes out um, and I think, you know, thinks he's top of the world. And in, in 06, puts on, a very, very large position. And I had a piece of the other side, but it wasn't me versus him. Yeah. It was like, he was versus the market. And mm -hmm. I think um, his, he tried to get very cute. And again, this is a time like I can, I see a lot of the trades that are happening and I can reverse engineer what his thinking is. Yeah. Right. And, and so he ends up in August of 2006 um, the whole trade starts to blow up on him. And, um, you know, his main trade, he had kind of two big trades. It was kind of short summer of 2006, long the winter of 6-7, and then short the summer of 2007. So kind of short summer, double long winter, short the following summer. Uh, and kind of, he had him on at such a size that, the market, I think in my view and many people's view, had gotten distorted on these pricings. And when he started going through and um, the market just eventually is bigger than any one trader, right? and he, he couldn't hold it up. And it started to collapse on him. And then 
they just ran out of money. Amaranth ran out of money. And I'm not sure whether the risk managers at Amaranth really understood, because he had it on his spreads, really understood the risk he had on. Mm-hmm. And I think they'd given him so much rope that he was allowed to run with it and put on these enormous positions without a lot of scrutiny. And it all came unwound there. Um, and, and the market kind of collapsed in kind of August 2006, September 2006, August and September of 2006. Um, and that brought in all the regulators who started saying, like, how could this happen? Because like, there was real chaos that was created during that time. Yeah. But, you know, I, I had a piece of it. The market had a piece of it. Um, I was surprised whenever and uh, he called me up as the thing was blowing up, asking me to buy his book. And he kind of showed me what he had. I, I was surprised. I thought I knew because I thought I had seen a lot of the trades. I was surprised at how big it was. And, um, and so the whole thing come on, came unwound. But I was never going to put my firm at risk by being the other side. It wasn't like one of us is going to be right, one of us is going to be wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And the whole thing. Um, so it's not the binary fight that yeah. the media yeah, yeah, made yeah. it out to be, you know, yeah, you versus them. And in fact, if you go back and look at the Senate subcommittee report and it says, like, in 2006, Amaranth dominated the market for natural gas. It wasn't Amaranth and Centaurus dominated the market for natural gas. Like we got listed a number of times in that report, but it was like Amaranth <laughs> dominated the market for natural gas. And like, it was true. Like it was, it was crazy times. Um, but, but the, the best trade, um, the best trade of my career was um, 2008, right? When things were falling apart. And it was this time when uh, the market started the year very tight, uh, low inventories, um, had had a cold winter, and and there's just this rampant um, trend in all commodities. Right? So this is when oil hits 140 something, um, gas hits 14 dollars, 13 something that year. Um, but although the market had started um, with coming out of the winter with low in, low inventories. Um, the pricing had got ahead of itself, right? And so supplies were coming on and demand was being lost. And so the, the market was actually pretty loose, right? And people were still kind of worried because of absolute levels. Um, and this is really where Shell started to come in. And it's, I remember um, seeing a, f- a few people come to the office and just like present, hear their pitches to invest in the physical assets of, of Shell, right? And I kind of, so you had already had Fayetteville. Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of had Barnett started, had started to be defined. Fayetteville had started to be defined. Um, and the big one now is Marcellus, right? And people were just putting out the maps of how big Marcellus was mm-hmm. and how big the modeling was about the amount of gas. And it, that's, I think the second quarter of, two, of 08 was like, wow, this, this is complete game changer. And this is not built into the market. Okay. And so there's still fear because we're at low inventories, but this market, which is trading still double digits, is just fundamentally mispriced. And so we kind of, as a firm, rode up the price um, into the summer, and then the, the economy starts to fall apart. And we reversed kind of pretty much at the top and kind of rode it, the market up the first half of the year and then wrote it down in the second half of the year. And 
and that's when kind of that late 08 into 09, the market really started to start understanding mm-hmm. the shell industry and how this was going to change and the volumes that were associated with this and that we were going from a market where you had to use price to allocate scarce resource to one that was going to bounce around marginal cost to produce. It's just completely different how the market prices. Yeah. So I want to rewind it a little bit. I've got this question on my mind. Um, Talking about when you made the decision to start your own operation. Um, I was kind of laughing when you were telling the story about raising capital and um, you know, you're talking about, well, I should just do it and just make money instead of trying to raise this hundred K. I should just go make a hundred K. This reminded me of our story. Cause we had that same, uh, epiphany last year. It's like we're wasting all our time trying to raise capital. Let's just go do it and generate revenue. And yeah. then Reason you start capital. doing that and investors start coming to you yeah. wanting to put money in. So it is funny to hear you have a similar, uh, startup story, but was the big driver for you starting your own operation? I know you said that there wasn't a lot of value from UBS or anyone else. You know, it was just kind of the, they provided the capital, but outside of that, there wasn't a little a lot of value. I mean, did you have like that entrepreneurial drive and spirit to go do your own thing? Yeah. Um, was that a big driver for you? Yeah, I just wanted to, you know, especially coming out of Enron. And again, I could have stayed at Enron forever had had the company taken a different path, um, but it didn't, and it kind of was the the kick in the butt. I think people need, you know, at times in their career, right? yeah. I think like, the inertia of just staying in that seat because you did it yesterday can be very strong. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. And sometimes when you're forced out of that seat and you have to then go decide, what do I want to do that then? Okay. Do I want to take a similar seat at UBS or no, I'm going to go do my own thing. And that mm-hmm. was when I'm going to go do my own thing. Right. Yeah. And I also had, when I was at Enron, they, half my comp was in stock and yeah, yeah. The, the stock was golden handcuffs for a while. And then it was, those handcuffs were obviously released. Um, but, but I really did want to control my own destiny yeah. at that point. Like, you know, I had worked for the big company. I had had the, the goods, the good and bad of working for a big company, right? All the resources around it. And so I knew I, I wanted to go have control. Um, and the question was, when I go from this trading floor of 800 people to one of eight people, I think I can replicate 95% of the information flow. The big question was, can I, does that translate into 95% of the profitability or 90% of the profitability or 0% of the profitability? Mm-hmm. Is all the value add that, that other 5%, that the 95% mm-hmm. like, other people can get that as well, and that's not the secret sauce. And it turned out, again, like it's had um, the benefit of great timing in my career um, that when I was, was started Centaurus, like the market was just in chaos. And like even people who had the knowledge didn't have the capital. They didn't have the corporate capital or the hedge fund capital. And so it was just on my own, yeah. my small team, we were able to to go take advantage of those opportunities. And then we started getting much more sophisticated. And so, again, one of the great things about gas, not gas, is um, you know, the information is out there, right? Because of 636 and the pipelines are independent and they have to publish their information. Mm-hmm. If you knew where to find the information, they wouldn't make it easy to find. Yeah. And it was, um, 
and it would just be a huge set of numbers. Right? You, you had to know where to go and what those numbers meant and how to use those numbers to build your model. Right? What is, you know, at, at this station, right, where's the demand? Okay, it's a power generation facility. Okay, you start to getting all the, the flows into power generation and you can start building a model of power generation demand, right? And, but you had to know yeah. where, to, where to go and, and how to do it. So we started doing that. And so my goal was, I want to, I'm going to spend more money than anybody else, than maybe BP on fundamental, right? Yeah. Enron was always deep, deep fundamentals. Count the molecules. Yeah. Right? Count molecules of demand, count molecules of supply, model what's happened in the past. And that creates, you know, a, a, the model for what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. And so starting to replicate that. And so as a hedge fund and one that has these management fees now that are starting to be very significant, right? I can go hire these people who have the expertise, um, they, how to use that information that's out there. I can hire people who are great at using big data mm -hmm. right? and like, let's create the model. And so I will, I need to have the highest confidence level possible whenever I'm putting on the trade that, that we're right. And yeah. again, like at the time, I think BP was the only shot because they were both sophisticated in the market about how to use the data as well as they were still touching customers and we as a hedge fund weren't. Yeah. It's crazy. This is like the, the pre Inveris days when nobody really had access to any kind of public data. So it's kind of, it's kind of nuts to think about you know, like that being like the major competitive edge. But I mean, honestly, not much has changed even in the space today. I mean, if you don't have access to data, it's really hard to, to make any kind of moves. I want to ask you really quickly about, you know, being an entrepreneur is stressful. I've been doing this for about a decade now and you got really high highs, you got really low lows. I'm curious, was it more stressful working and, and running the trading desk at Enron or, or working for yourself now that you're, you know, you're playing with, you know, your own money, but you're also playing with, yeah. you know, your LP's money and things like that. I'm just kind of curious as to. Yeah, where, where that's, your, that's a great question. I, you know, I think it was, it was more stressful at Enron because I'm still trying to build my career yeah. and build my reputation. And it's, you know, it's really at risk mm -hmm. early in one's career. You know, I think there's a lot of path dependency toward in trading about, you know, if you start off with two bad years, you're out of trading. Yeah. <laughs> if you have those two bad years in year 10 and 11, you still have, you still have your seat. Yeah. Right. And so if you start off well, then you, you build up reputational capital mm -hmm. yeah. for those downtimes because you're going to yeah. have those downtimes. Right. And I think I also um, learned how to deal with the stress mm. over time. It was had some unhealthy habits just kind of at Enron, just the amount of stress you came out and um, it, it was hard to manage. Yeah, and I think yeah. the trading is generally a young person's game just because it's, it's harder to manage that stress level. Uh, yeah, the older you get and the more responsibilities, especially kind of outside of work that you have. Yeah. What, what were, what were some of the, the things that you found out by like allowing you to handle that? Was it like, exercise or meditation, journaling? Yeah, I wish I had a good answer. I think a lot of it was um, self-confidence. Okay. Mm -hmm. right? And so um, whenever we started making really good money at Centaurus, I made sure uh, we'd do forced distributions to all the investors, including to me. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, over time we handed back, you know, way more than a hundred cents on the dollar to investors. Right? We just say like, everybody's taking 20% off the table this month, sending out checks and I'd take money off too. Right. So that it was like, if we ever have the blow up time, like, um, because as markets are, you're always susceptible to that. Yeah. Right. Um, like we can all walk away and, um, and be okay. Yeah. Right. And it's like, if you're on the craps table and you never take money off, right, at some point you're going to seven out. Mm-hmm. Right. And when you seven out, does everybody go, good job. Like that was a great role. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or does everybody cuss? Yeah. Right? yeah. And I wanted to make sure that everybody, if that ever happened where I sevened out, that everybody said that was a great run. Thanks. Yeah. I was I'm glad to be a part of it. Yeah. And plus like I'm, I'm good financially. Yeah. Right? And so I had gotten a point and I talked a little bit about that path dependency. I had, um, I'd earned the investor's trust. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I was able to do, to handle bigger drawdowns than I think the, the rest of the industry was. Yeah. Um, because of like, the investors with me had already gotten their money back multiple times over and like, it was house money for them. Yeah. And so they, they had confidence in me. I, I had enough money outside, like, you know, I'm set. Yeah. And so if we believe in the trade, if we really believe in it and think this is more of a squeeze than a change in fundamentals, we can stick with it. We're not getting the t- tap on the shoulder from our investor base. Yeah. And that, I think, um, really helped with the stress. So you, you go and build Centaurus and it's very successful. You guys build a fortune, you know, for LPs, for everyone at the fund, for yourself. Why'd you quit hmm. such an early age? Yeah. So there was there were a lot of reasons. Um, I think uh, the easiest thing to say is I didn't enjoy going, going into the office anymore. Right? I just didn't enjoy it. And when I had enough resources um, that I should be spending my time in a manner that I enjoy. And so I, the second order question is, okay, why wasn't I enjoying going into the office? Yeah. And there's kind of a hundred little reasons, some, some bigger, some little ones. Uh, I had they'd gotten married. Um, had kids. So you start using some of your mental energy over there. Mm-hmm. We had, my wife and I had put together this foundation and started having a little bit of mental energy over this way. The markets had gotten harder over time. They were just, as they should, the markets should always get more efficient over time. Yeah. But especially kind of post 09 when the markets, when you had extreme volatility pre 09. Um, and then the shell overhang and supply overhang that made the volatility, you know, you know, really removed the volatility from the market. And so this became, you know, little price moves. Yeah. Um, the regulatory environment had changed. It felt like I had a target on my back and a post Amaranth um, mm-hmm. and then into a you know, different administration. It was like, do I need this? Um, and I had done 17 years in energy trading. And that was the only thing I had done professionally. And I just wasn't getting that mental challenge anymore. I was coming in and going through the motions. Yeah. And I always enjoyed the game of it, right? the challenge of it. And I was no longer challenged. And so I think you know, there's other reasons besides that, but kind of everything together, um, it would get to Monday morning and I'm like, oh, it's Monday morning. Whereas... In the earlier years, right, it would be Sunday night. I'd be like, yes, 
tomorrow's Monday morning. Mm-hmm. That's Buckets great. Are open. <laughs> yeah. You know? And so like, I mean, I've got I, the resource. I want to spend my time doing things that make me happy. So it's such a great lesson because all startup founders, you know, we think about, you know, the exit and the end goal. And I've taken a lot of time recently to appreciate the journey and the challenge and building. And I think a lot of people take that for granted because once you reach, you know, the end destination, you get to that point where you're just going through the motions or it's no longer fun for you. And so, um, you know, I I think that that's a a great lesson from that is kind of slow down and enjoy the day-to-day process of the journey because once you get to that point, you know, got all the money in the world, you know, now you've got a family and you're doing philanthropy and, you know, you, other things become important to you. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's really important to appreciate the journey of building while you're doing it too, because someday, you know, may come to an end and it's not something that you enjoy necessarily. Yeah. And, and the exits can, is hard psychologically for a lot of people. And I was worried about it. And I think I stayed in that seat two years longer than I should have in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Again, like just that inertia of mm-hmm. you're coming into, you're going in tomorrow because you came in today. Yeah. Right. Becomes really strong. And to actually change careers or to shut something down or to sell something is hard because you have to say, make this proactive move of change. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, especially when it's uh, metaphorically my name on the wall, uh, it, was, it was hard. And I had a bunch of people working for me and I was worried about what happens to them, you know, if I close this thing down. Mm-hmm. Uh, ended up finding a great solution for that. But uh, I'd seen a number of people leave the industry because they had gotten burnt out or frustrated and they went and searched for something else um, and couldn't find that other challenge and came back to the industry. And I was really nervous about that, that when I shut this down, like, was I going to be back in two years kind of starting a new firm because I didn't find fulfillment in my Mm -hmm. life outside of energy trading? Yeah. Uh, and, and in retrospect now, like I found a lot of fulfillment and I, I never, I never second guessed that decision to shut it down. The only second guessing was, yeah, I wish I, would, I should have done it a year earlier. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about the, the foundation that you and your wife started. What was the, what was kind of like the genesis of that? And like, what, what was the, the mission behind it? Yeah. So uh, I think a lot of people from the financial industry have been interested in K-12 education. Right? K-12 mm-hmm. is associated with a lot of life outcomes that people care about from employment, poverty, Mm -hmm. physical health, mental health, Mm -hmm. uh, family structure, right? It's associated with the the outcomes of K-12 are associated with those other life outcomes. And so I had gotten involved early on in, um, it was really when I was back at Enron, um, kind of a funny story. I was, um, at the supermarket and checking out and they have all the magazines right there. And there is a magazine, it's top 200 nonprofits in America. I just like pick it up, starting to make some money. I should do something good with this. Um, throw it in, go home, turn to the K-12 ed section. And one of the groups there is KIPP, the KIPP schools, which were founded in Houston. Mm-hmm. And so I c- called up the founder of it and or I'd, actually I just called up the school and said, I, want to come visit, came home and um, wrote them a, a, like a $25,000 check. And, and this is back when they were really small. Mm-hmm. And I 
<laughs> get a call from the founder a few days later when he gets it. And so I'm like, thank you. And like, I want to meet you. Like, who are you? <laughs> like, this is <laughs> awesome. Right? It takes us a lot longer to raise 25 grand than, than having someone come for a 30 minute visit to the school. <laughs> and that was the start of a very long journey for me thinking of these ed reform circles and starting to think about, you know, why does one school get different outcomes from, from the school that, that, uh, uh, serves a very similar demographic that's down the block. And had lots of theories about that. And the ed reform movement kind of moved in a, like trying a lot of different things. And by the end, you know, I started thinking this is a lot of it's policy, right? It's kind of how do you set up the system mm -hmm. drives the outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so when I got married and Laura and I decided like, we want to be very, you know, really ramp up the philanthropic efforts. She quit her um, job as an M&A lawyer um, and then kind of co-founder of an oil firm to go do philanthropy, philanthropy full-time. I joined her a year later and we, we, we were doing K-12, but then we, we had broader ambitions. And so we started um, getting into public pension reform. Right? And, and again, like the system that was having bad outcomes and was kind of the, the system was defined by, uh, by special interests, right? Concentrated interests that had a stake in it, mm -hmm. um, and had created a system that you had structural underfunding and you had benefit design problems. And my wife, again, from having the legal background, she got interested in criminal justice and some of the problems with, with the criminal justice system had a, our first experience was with the innocence project, right? Which goes and, and, um, and will prove that innocence for people that were on death row by using DNA evidence that had not been tested during the trial. And I really respected their work because they were using the individual, they were saving the individual, but using the individual to show the flaws of the system. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you fix the system so that this innocent person isn't convicted um, of this horrible crime to begin with? Yeah. And so, like, not by design, but we ended up working in, in these areas that were these big systems where, um, that really affected individuals that there was, that had historically been very partisan and there started to be political will to find new solutions for these systems. Right. Um, and there were ideas about it. And so that led us to kind of over time really morph into this policy foundation. So again, concentrating on issues of policy, because I think that those solutions are the most scalable and sustainable, right? It's not a programmatic intervention. It is mm -hmm. how do you change the rules and incentives <clears throat> of a system to get better behavior? And a lot of our work now is, you know, or, or a lot of people are trying to add programs, um, to the, to the government, right? And we're, concentrated on how do we improve the systems that we already have? Yeah. Right. How do we improve the healthcare system? And how do we improve the criminal justice system? How do you improve the educational system? We already have this stuff. You think the outcomes on it are mediocre, right? And we can improve people's lives by getting better outcomes. And so that's led to this very long journey now, um, again, kind of a, a foundation that's um, kind of 11 years old now and is Current formation, um, 
We have about 100 people, offices in D.C., wow. New York, Houston, um, programmatic experts in all these areas. We get very interested in areas where um, we call them orphan areas, where other philanthropic interest doesn't isn't already involved. Mm-hmm. So when we got involved in healthcare, there was a lot of philanthropic interest in innovation, right? a lot of funding in that. Like, so let's find a, a better cure for disease X. Right? And we thought about it like, Nobody's working on price. What's the cost of healthcare? Right? Mm-hmm. This both affecting government. Mm-hmm. Right? Is healthcare is eating government resources, so government can't fund the other things that we want government to do, as well as it's affecting access at the individual level, both the the financial outcomes of the, of the individual as well as just access. People can't afford to to go to the doctor to get the treatment that they need, and a system that's very much dominated by special interests mm-hmm. where they, nobody, no philanthropy had come in with this perspective, right? Let's, let's try to make this system less expensive, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so we, we've been involved in, in a number of areas, try to improve the system of democracy through things like anti-gerrymandering, um, promoting ranked choice voting, for instance, um, higher education financing. So, Federal government spends ton of money, hundreds of billions of dollars, on subsidizing higher ed for a system that gets very mediocre outcomes. Mm-hmm. Right? There needs to be accountability in that system mm-hmm. right? yeah. to both like, protect the government's investment and, more importantly, make the outcomes for the individual better. Yeah. Right. And so we've just like, it's just grown into into this broad policy foundation and and. Uh, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Oh, I imagine so. I mean, you're talking about trying to solve some of the world's hardest problems there, right? And I want to thank you for doing that. I mean, it's incredibly noble. I mean, when you start talking about the healthcare system, I mean, talk about an industry that has... We've talked about this. Yeah, been- <laughs> how many car rides have we talked about just yeah. how it's completely broken from, especially like being founders, it's like, if you're going to pay for insurance, it comes out of one hand or the other, mm-hmm. whether you know it's yours or the company's. And especially when you're bootstrapped, you try to save every penny you possibly can. And so then your health is at risk. And he's had all sorts of (laughs) jacked up health issues. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But you know, there's just such misaligned incentives in the, in the medical industry. There's just the systems broken. And, you know, you, you made a really good point where a lot of foundations focus on technological innovation and things of that nature, but really have to focus on the core issue, yeah. which is how the system's set up and that's what controls. Yeah. And output. we need both, right? The, yeah, the innovation is sure. important. Sure. It's just yeah. like, we weren't sure how our, our value add was on innovation. We were, yeah. we're not science experts. Um, yeah. And a lot of this stuff was already funded by smart capital allocators and, and smart grantees. Yeah. You know? I would imagine that it's like equal parts fulfilling as it is frustrating no, as you, <laughs> as you dive in and you uncover like, like, just all of the policies about why things are the way that they are and just how much of an uphill battle it can be to change those kind of things, yeah. reverse those kind of things. Yeah. Um, certainly at the federal government level, just the power of entrenched interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought I understood it. I didn't understand it. Right. We have a healthcare system that looks the way it does today because the most powerful lobby, bar none, in D.C. is healthcare. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Or none, right? yeah. And you have the drug companies, the hospitals, the physicians groups, 
the disease-specific organizations. Right? And anytime you start proposing something, um, there's a the saying that um, a, a dollar of spending is someone's dollar of, re of revenue, mm -hmm. right? And if you try to decrease spending, you're also decreasing someone's revenue. Yeah. And then they come out with a story of how it's going to destroy the healthcare system if their revenues get cut by 2%. Yeah. Right. And how people are going to die. Right. And you don't hear the story of people are dying today because they don't have access. Yep. Right. And people are dying today, um, or we have governments, right, is particularly true of the state government that can't print money. Right, where every dollar that's being spent on healthcare is a dollar that's not being spent on something else that government could be doing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And there's just, there's um, very little accountability in the system about how things are priced and the market power of the actors in the system. So, I bet we could have an entire other podcast on yeah, yeah. <laughs> the issues that you're trying to combat. You know, before we end this one, I got to ask you a couple questions or else I'm going to have people pissed off at me that I didn't ask you these types of questions, but we don't have to go super deep in this, but let's talk about energy transition. Um, I know you've sent off yeah. a couple of tweets um, talking about the transition. Um, you know, what role, you know, I had a really big report that came out um, this week um, just talking about how aggressive um, the adoption of renewables and electric vehicles and uh decarbonization will be until 2050, you know, what do you see happening with oil and gas over the next, you know, two, three decades and especially everything that's happening with electric vehicles. Like I'm not going to lie that Ford F-150 that just came out. Are you getting one? Oh yeah. Hell yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's, pretty, yeah. it's, pretty, <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty slick. And see, I love that. I love when technology drives adoption. Yeah. Right. And I yeah, think yeah. that's how it should be, but how does this impact oil and gas markets, you know, moving forward? And I'm really it was really good to hear, you know, talk when you talked about, you know, the catalyst or the beginning of the shell revolution. Yeah. You know, it was just such a huge supply of nat gas and that completely changed, you know, the volatility of markets. You know, what do you think this the oil and gas industry looks like over the next couple decades? Let's say yeah. next decade. 10 so years. I, I'll give two perspectives that are counter each other. Um, so, so one goes back to this, the shell metaphor. Right. And if you look back at shell volumes in the kind of 2005 to 2008 time period, and they were very low, right? And they're increasing. And it's very difficult in the beginning for a revolution like that to distinguish between a linear trend and an exponential trend, the S curve mm -hmm. versus a linear curve, mm -hmm. right? And so a lot of people um, were looking at the shell volumes, and again, it's when there's at a very low base, right, 30% a year compounded, isn't that much, right? And you can still mm -hmm. draw a linear trend through that, and it still kind of fits, right? And psychologically, especially people in the energy industry, myself included, right, there's very little revolutionary things that happen. Right? Things are evolutionary. We're used to linear trends, right? And this is why I think the, the industry missed the shell revolution, like the, the ramifications of shell mm -hmm. for a long time. Right? Even people who were knee deep in it, like Aubrey McClendon, mm -hmm. right, still didn't understand. He was the cause, right? he was leading the charge on this, and he didn't understand 
the ramifications of it because we're all um, used to linear trends in this business, right? And so if you look at, again, um, it, if you just cut out that kind of 05 to 08 volumes, it looks linear. And then if you broaden it out for the next couple of years, now you see the S-curve developing, right? And I think there's an analogy there with take electric vehicles, right? Very low base today, right? Even if it's 30% annual growth, mm-hmm. it's, it's small. It's almost irrelevant. It kind of looks like a linear trend. And if you step back and look at the announcements that, that auto manufacturers have made, um, now, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what they're going to do, but at least what they're saying and the amount of, of investment that they're making into the electric space, it could very easily be like that start of the S-curve that they were about to do that exponential growth mm-hmm. in electric cars mm-hmm. right? and the exponential growth in renewables and the exponential growth in a number of other technologies to decarbonize. Now, the counter argument is that... Um, the S-curve is much more prevalent in tech because the product life is much shorter. So you can replace a previous generation of things very quickly in tech. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, in, in energy, right, even the fleet, the auto fleet, which kind of lasts 15 to 20 years now, like they're yeah. very good at cars now. A right? car can last 20 years easily. Yeah. Right? If you just start modeling it out, like, okay, if it's, if electric cars are 5% of sales next year, which they won't be, um, or they're, I don't think they're going to be, um, but it's 5%, 10%, 20%, 40%, 80% each year going forward, like, just to turn over the fleet, it's a long time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's a long time to turn over from gas-fired gen to renewables. Yeah. It's just the, the scale that's required of this and the fact that the established um, fleet of this is there and it lasts a long time means that we're going to be reliant on fossil fuels for a very long time. Um, and there's very little investment going into oil today, for instance. Mm-hmm. Right. So people are reluctant to invest in the long-term projects. Yeah. Right. Um, so it's kind of easy to go invest in shell because you, you pay back pretty quickly. You can hedge it and, and you know, this is, rather easy business, right? When you're talking about we're going to do West Africa deep water, right? People don't, don't want to make that commitment today. Yeah. And the capital markets, investors don't want to invest in that. Um, the, a lot of the big oil companies, the integrated oil companies are trying to transition away from that stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. And so those projects aren't getting funded and oil demand is still pretty much set for the 2020s, right? We can argue about what the 2030s are going to look like. Yeah. But 2020s is like, it's hard to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and is that investment being made for, like, where are those 2030 barrels coming from? Yeah. And I think that's the bull story, at least in terms of prices. Yeah. For oil. 100%. Yeah. I agree with you. I got a wild card question for you. For you in this. For a guy that loves volatility, what do you think about Bitcoin? <laughs> That's <laughs> where I was going to go. This, this, is, my pers- this is my personal so question. I, 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 I did a tweet about this, uh, I think, last week. Um, so I'm very open to it. I came very close to buying uh, cryptocurrency a couple of times um, 
and certainly kicking myself that I didn't. <laughs> the problem I had with it was what is the real use case for it? Right. And I just always struggled with the use case because the promise of it was micropayments. Mm-hmm. It was low cost uh, cross currency transfers. Um, there was a, a few other, other aspects of like the problem that crypto was trying to solve Versus how is it being used today, mm-hmm. right? And how it's being used mm-hmm. today is a um, payment for illicit goods, mm-hmm. um, speculation, tax evasion. Uh, you know, it's um, people is a bet against the U.S. dollar, right? Which like, I think th- that may be legitimate use, but um, yeah. but it's just become. Um, I struggle to see what the use of it is mm-hmm. besides just the speculative instrument. Yeah. Now, gold's arguably a speculative instrument and that has existed for a long time and people use that as a store of value. Yeah. And I think there is a believable story about crypto being a store of value that's independent of um, essential banks. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what got me interested in it. Yeah. Um, but I do worry and why I haven't bought it in the past couple of years is because I worry about um, governments don't like having this out there <laughs> as yeah. being able to evade taxes, as being a, a, a way to pay for illicit goods, mm-hmm. as being a facilitator of, of ransomware. Mm-hmm. Right? If you got rid of all crypto, hey, hey, the ransomware goes to zero. Like, how do you pay the person? Yeah. Right. Um, and so I, I do think governments are going to become much more aggressive at trying to stamp this out. And you've seen some headlines from China or about China's role on, on crypto, yeah. uh, even this week. Um, past day or two, U.S. has come out and started talking about uh, the, the tax reporting that needs to happen for yeah. this. It's like ten like up to or as soon as it's over ten thousand. Any transfer of, of more than ten thousand yeah. dollars of it, you yeah. you have to report just like it's cash. Right? If you mm-hmm. have yeah. cash, right? And kind of the same thing. Like cash is used as yeah as a payment for illicit goods. It's used to evade taxes. <laughs> right? Yeah, USD's um, always been a, a favorable currency right. for criminals. You know, so yeah, yeah. And so like this is why there used to be ten thousand dollar bills. Yeah, right. And government got rid of that. They're like. Who needs a ten thousand dollar bill? Yeah. Right? They got rid of that and got rid of the thousand dollar bill. The biggest bill is a hundred dollars now. So, right, if you're trying to move significant money in cash, it's actually hard because you have these. You need big suitcases for yeah. it. Right? It's kind of harder <laughs> than if you pull out a few. You have a handful of ten thousand dollar bills. Like having a hundred thousand dollars of hundreds is just harder. And I think um, the government's just going to put up roadblocks. So I, yeah. I don't know where it goes. What would a 28-year-old John think about cryptocurrency, seeing the volatility in the market and being oh. a trader? I mean, would you be all over that? Or Yeah. I just, <laughs> um, He's like, you, you said it yeah. like, yeah, like, man, it would be bad. Yeah, I think um, the market makers in crypto are just crushing it. Oh, they had to be crushing it, yeah. Crushing it. The arbitrage across exchanges, um, yeah. the market making revenues that's in it, they're just crushing it. Yeah. And that's what, you know, I don't want to get too deep into this conversation, but, you know, if you talk about the intended purpose of Bitcoin being a uh, currency and obviously it hasn't fulfilled that, but then you look at it as a store of value and it's just 
keeps getting more deeply ingrained into the market, you know, the longer yeah. that it exists. And yeah. it's like, how long can you let it keep going before it becomes, I mean, you have futures trading on it now and you have hedge funds that are focused on cryptocurrencies and it's just getting deeper ingrained into the economy and into the markets as a whole. And so, um, you know, it's just really interesting to see where it's come in the last decade from being currency that you used on illegal websites yeah. to where it's at now. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody under the age of 40 owns gold. Yeah. Right. I don't think. Yeah. I own Bitcoin. Yeah. And everybody, <laughs> yeah. And I think everybody in their twenties, you know, has interest yeah. in buying some crypto. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the money flows are very much, you know, pointed on yeah. a very bull case for it. Yeah. That's great. Uh, unless the government finds a way to try to shut it down. Yeah, for right? sure. Well, how to throw that random one at you. That's that like my personal ask John Arnold what he thinks about Bitcoin. Maybe the only person on the internet that's got to do that. So John, man, thanks for coming and doing this. Yeah, it's um, been fun. This means yeah, it's a real a lot. pleasure. Yeah, it means a lot to Jake and I. I mean, like I said at the beginning, this is like the pinnacle of our podcast. When we started our podcast a couple of years ago, we wanted guys like you on the show. And so um, seeing that come to fruition and you just taking the time to do it, I mean, speaks a lot to your character. And I know a lot of people out there listening are going to find a lot of value in this and, you know, just appreciate you uh, giving back to the ecosystem here in Houston. Yeah. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys, what an episode. If, uh, if you got two seconds, please take time and uh, share with your friends and family, leave us a rating and review, and we'll catch you guys on the next episode. Cool.